You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Lecture 11. This concerns Chapter 2, Section 3 of Veritatis Splendor, entitled Fundamental Options and Special Kinds of Behavior. In the first two sections of chapter two, Pope John Paul II was investigating the topic of freedom, first freedom in relation to law, trying to show that there is no intrinsic opposition between the real, authentic, genuine sense of human freedom and God's law, but rather that God's law is something that helps to give a direction and an orientation to our freedom by pointing out the truth about the person that needs to be respected in any use of our free choice, and that it actually helps to enliven and makes possible the person's growth to what God has designed. Secondly, there was a consideration of freedom and conscience, and the way in which freedom is sometimes misunderstood, as though in our human freedom we have somehow a prerogative about deciding what is good and what is evil. And Pope John Paul II is eager to make that clarification. Our decision is about how we use our freedom, but the standards by which we judge any use of it are not standards that we create, control, or alter, but rather standards that we receive from the divine law, God's explicit statement about morality in the scriptures, and from the natural law that is written within the heart and is there for us to discover. And so the thrust of section two of chapter two was very much on the proper relationship between conscience and truth, and that living in the truth, knowing the truth, really being committed to it in our conscience, helps to give freedom a real dignity. This third section is about yet another aspect of freedom, because freedom is not found only in the specific acts by which we make particular choices of this or that, but there's also a, a more global sense of freedom when I orient my whole life in a certain way. So what we'll be looking at in this third section is a particular opportunity that comes when we think of freedom in terms of the orientation of one's whole life, but also noting a distortion of that idea in what's called fundamental option theory. And it's deeply related to the fourth section of chapter two, in general on teleology, that is on the end directedness and the appropriate place of consideration of consequences within moral reasoning. That section number four within chapter two is much more complex and I'll actually spend more time on that, lectures 12, 13, and 14, but these topics are related. Let's turn now to the topic at hand, namely fundamental option and specific kinds of behavior. What Pope John Paul II has done here is then to take a third aspect of freedom, not just the particular actions, the particular choices, but rather that global sense of an orientation of one's whole life. He is very mindful of how important that is. I think it's true for many of us, it's true for any convert, because in a case of a convert, whatever it is one is converted from, whether converted from some other form of religion, whether some other particular kind of Christianity, or perhaps converted from being quite indifferent, 
let alone being agnostic or atheist. Any kind of conversion means that one has organized one's whole life around the person of Jesus Christ, belief in him as truly divine, and acceptance of the church that he established. It's a very strong and important orientation. Sometimes people have been grown up as cradle Catholics, and yet there comes to be a moment when they, they really find themselves radically converted in regard to our faith. They find that it makes much greater meaningfulness. I think that both of those sort of things are what John Paul II is thinking about, the conversion experience that just reorients the whole of one's life, or perhaps that notion that suddenly we find the faith is something we need to take very seriously. It's also, of course, remarkably important for a vocation. And when one thinks about anybody who has discerned a vocation, whether to the priesthood or to consecrated life in the form of some religious community, in the experience of finding that one has a calling from God and then accepting that vocation, it means just a radical reorientation of, of how one lives. If one accepts, for instance, a religious community, now poverty, chastity, obedience, and the specific charism of that community gives one a very much a fundamental option. And so I think it's across the board for lay people, for priests, for religious. There can be such a fundamental option. Pope John Paul II, enormously uh, alert to the, uh, the importance of this, writes about it with great tenderness here in the very beginning of the third section of chapter 2. He is also mindful, however, that there are some erroneous trends of thinking, not so much about that general orientation that gives us enthusiasm, that really penetrates the soul of our being. All that's very much to the good. That's the good cholesterol version of fundamental option. But there is a bad cholesterol version of it, and it's that prospect that I think encouraged him to make this the third topic that he covers within chapter 2. That bad cholesterol version, let's call it fundamental option theory, in his judgment, arises within those theologians who wanted to radically re-envision the relationship between a person and the actions that the person does, the choices that the person makes. They wanted to re-envision it in this way. They wanted to suggest that Perhaps the real moral evaluation, perhaps the real moral coloring, comes from the fundamental orientation rather than from the particular choices from the specific acts. I think they wanted to do that for various reasons, <clears throat> and as we go forward within section 3 of chapter 2, we'll consider some of those reasons. But what John Paul II here is focusing on is the way in which doing that radical reorientation of the relation between person and act, that this is precisely the, the danger for moral theology and for orthodox thinking in that regard, because it could lead <clears throat> to a great diminution of the importance of each specific choice. And I think that he is very much committed, as Catholic moral theology has always been, to the fact that each free choice has to be given a moral analysis. Each one has a moral coloration from the kind of choice that it is. We'll be dealing with that both in section 3 and in section 4. This, of course, is very dear to his heart. If you have studied the writings of Pope John Paul II, you will notice that one of his very important books is a book 
translated in various ways. It's Osoba Ichin in Polish. In the translation that was made of it back in 1978-79, it was called The Acting Person. That translation uh, is an unfortunate translation in some ways. Uh, it, it doesn't render the Polish as accurately as it ought to, and the editor who um, produced the book in English added things that weren't in the book and didn't include some of the things that actually are there. So there was subsequent to the election of the Pope, he was a little too busy to supervise the translation back in 1978 and 79. Subsequently, there was a new Polish edition, which is now the authentic edition, and there are plans for a new translation that will give us a more accurate reading of it. Given those problems with the translation that we are presently experiencing, nonetheless, the thought within that book, Osoba Ichin, The Person and Acting, is extremely important to the Pope's heart. He is so mindful that we have our dignity as human beings by virtue of the fact that every human being is a person, but that we express ourselves in action. And so the whole thrust of that book is on the way in which the person manifests himself or herself by the free and deliberate actions that that person chooses to undertake. In doing so, Pope John Paul II, in that book and here in Veritatis Splendor, is relying upon a very important distinction that Catholic moral theology often makes. In Latin, it's the difference between actus humanus and actus hominis, that is, a human act as opposed to the act of a human being. If I were to try to define those terms, I would focus especially on the fact that a human act, as that term is used, refers to something that is thought about, deliberated upon, chosen knowingly. It's something that we do and we're responsible for it precisely because we have chosen to do it, we knew what we were doing. The actus hominis, often translated the act of a man or the act of a human being, refers to something that is a physical action that we do, but it isn't anything that's particularly deliberate. It merely happens to be done by somebody who happens to be a human being. Let me illustrate in a very simple way, but I think it'll be an easy way to remember it. If I sneeze, that's the act of a human being. A dog could sneeze, a human can sneeze. But if when I sneeze, I choose to reach into my pocket and get my handkerchief in order not to spread my germs, it's a matter of politeness in society, it's a matter of, of actually doing a moral act. In that, I don't want to spread my germs and I want to protect everybody else from them. In a way, that chosen deliberate act of trying to cover my sneeze, that's a human act. Of course, there are many more even more significant human acts. But a human act isn't just the, the grand, really important life decision. Anything that I deliberately do, anything that I know what I'm doing and choose to do it. In fact, it can be a human act not to engage in some physical activity. If, for instance, I am being put under much pressure and somebody wants me to do something with my body physically, but I know it would be immoral to do that, my choice to sit still, my choice not to move my limbs would also be a human act because it's a deliberate choice. Whereas a twitching, a sneeze, anything that's involuntary, even the matter of breathing most of the time, we do it as simply the act of a human being I could control my breath, I could choose to hold my breath, or could choose to breathe faster or breathe slower. To the extent that I'm deliberately doing anything, it's a human act, 
for which I bear some responsibility, increasing depending on the gravity of what it is that my act affects. So that distinction that I'm introducing here is a venerable and old distinction, namely what just happens to occur in a bodily way, no particular moral responsibility, as opposed to anything that I do which is deliberate, chosen, voluntary, that's a human act, that's the sort of thing that Pope John Paul II was discussing in great detail in Osoba Ichin and is invoking here in the third part of chapter 2. What he is concerned about then is stressing that every human act, that is everything that is the result of deliberate choice, is something that has a moral value. It is something that can be morally analyzed and morally evaluated. And what he is worried about and eager here to correct is the tendency in some quarters of contemporary theology to deny or de-emphasize the intrinsic moral significance, the moral character of each individual deliberate act, and the way in which this group in his regard erroneously does, is to suggest that by a fundamental option, that's the thing for which they would give moral responsibility, and then they would just treat all the specific choices, all the specific acts, as things that merely flow as a symptom or as a sign from that fundamental behavior. In doing so, they are not giving enough importance to all the particular choices that make up our life. When those individuals who maintain fundamental option theory attempt to justify their position, the way in which they tend to do so is this. They say, well, all the specific acts that I might deliberately do, they're only about goods in this category or that category. And as such, they are premoral goods. They are things which are simply a subject for rational, technical calculation, but that by themselves they're not intrinsically moral. So for instance, if I were choosing to eat, and choosing to eat really healthy food, or choosing to eat some junk food or some high cholesterol food in the other sense of cholesterol, if I were choosing to do that, they would maintain, well, those are a, a set of premoral goods. Admittedly, on the premoral level, some might be healthy for my body, some might be hurtful to my body. But they would contend that that action is something that's merely right or wrong according to a specific category. And they would want to maintain that the only thing that really has a moral coloring is the choice I make by a fundamental option when I choose for God, for truth, for goodness, or for something else. This is what John Paul II is arguing against. Why does he find so much importance that it gets to the rank of this set of four particular erroneous tendencies? As you can probably suspect by this point, the reason is, is that it very much touches on the Church's teaching about sin and about grace. I think that some of the proponents of fundamental option theory were put off, maybe even scandalized, by the very thought that a good person, somebody with a fundamentally good orientation, could possibly engage in sin, maybe even repeated sin, by doing repeated actions, and that they found a certain discrepancy there. As you well know, in the time of the Second Vatican Council and in some of the moral revisionism that was taking place, particularly in the area of sexual ethics, I think that many people found it very hard to believe that contraception was wrong, that masturbation is wrong, that other repeated acts might be wrong and might even be grave sin. 
my own sense from reading and some of the proponents of fundamental option theory that the reason why they make a more general case, make a theoretical statement about fundamental option theory, actually had to do with sexual ethics. That is, when the church taught that each act, if deliberately committed, of masturbation, or each act of contraception was gravely wrong, I think they found that objectionable. And so their way of trying to decide the issue was to say, those are merely technical acts which a person does within a much larger framework of a general orientation. They could not see, they could not bring themselves to join the church in admitting that those things could be gravely wrong. And so their solution to it was to suggest that the only thing that really gives moral coloration to a person is a fundamental orientation rather than the particular dimensions of the specific choice and the specific action that a person might take. I think that that's what this issue is about. What Pope John Paul II wants to do with it, it's there in paragraph 65, that's within section 3, is to suggest that what we need to do is to appreciate the difference here between the good sense of fundamental option as an orientation that does help motivate us for the sake of doing what we want to do in all the practicalities of living, that's the good cholesterol sense, and on the other hand, the bad cholesterol sense that diminishes the importance that we really need to attach to each individual moral choice because each one should get its separate evaluation. For John Paul II's point of view, I'm here particularly at paragraph 66 at this point, he is mindful that both from the perspective of the Bible, from the perspective of Revelation, and from the perspective of good reasoning, the Church should oppose the bad cholesterol sense of fundamental option theory. For, exa for example, at paragraph 66, when he is thinking especially of what Revelation contributes to this, he is mindful of passages like the letter of St. Paul to the Romans, chapter 16, verse 26. In what he, that verse talks about is the obedience of faith. It gives a sense of the way in which when we are ready to be faithful, we will give our obedience to God on all the matters in which there is any particular implication for us. There is an importance to a fundamental option of faith and to giving our faith to the Lord and to the church entirely and completely. He's also mindful of passages like the one we were considering in the story of the rich young man, namely Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, in which Jesus simply says, come follow me. He is asking the young man to make a fundamental reorientation of his life, to give away his goods to the poor, or at least to sell them and to give away what he gets for them, and then to come and follow him in poverty, following out the various councils, including poverty, chastity, and obedience, making a whole commitment to his life. So he finds the Bible very much praising the notion of a fundamental option in the right sense of the word. But he is also mindful of the way in which the Bible is very much antithetical to this fundamental option theory. So often, in the case of Old Testament and New, specific actions are thought to be right or specifically thought to be wrong. It depends upon the kind of action that it is. So, for example, if one goes through the commandments, thou shalt not kill, we've already spoken about some of the distinctions that one must make there, but it's any act of killing, how, whatever the fundamental orientation of the person, or thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, whatever the fundamental orientation of the person, any act of adultery would be wrong. 
or if one thinks of the positive commandments, such as the fourth one or the first three in the first tablet, honor father and mother. Now, admittedly, honoring father and mother, honoring one's parents, will differ depending on one's age. And if one is seven or eight or nine or ten, the kind of obedience and love that is given to one's parents is going to be a little different than when you're 53 and you have an aged parent who actually needs to have special care in a nursing home. Mom or dad, I can remember my own mother saying, take me home. But it was impossible to take mom home, and so I couldn't literally obey her, but the way in which I had to honor her was precisely by finding a nursing home very close to Fordham University so that I could visit virtually every day. My point being that the positive precepts, which are so much dependent upon the circumstances in which one finds oneself, nonetheless oblige to specific actions. It's not enough to have simply a general orientation and say, because I'm a good person, committed to God, committed to a religious order, that anything else I do is fair game and a mere technical calculation. In fact, once one even voices it in the way that I just did now, I think one sees the inner contradiction. In a way, this effort to talk about freedom as a fundamental option that leaves us free to simply make all these rational calculations, once one starts saying what that implies, even the talk about it shows how fundamental option really eviscerates freedom because all the particular actions that I do have a relative unimportance from their perspective. I don't think that that's what freedom really is. Rather, freedom in its mature and authentic sense means constantly choosing in a way that really does respect the dignity of the person, and by respecting the dignity of both my person and anybody else on whom my action would have a consequence, this is what it means to honor God and to honor the freedom that he gave me. Freedom is a matter of caring for each and every individual act in the multiplicity and sometimes the complexity of circumstances. Hence, John Paul II's focus here is precisely on seeing the unity of the person, body and soul, the very point that he had emphasized in the previous section when thinking about conscience, we are united as body and soul. And in that sense, you see the point that I was making toward the beginning of this series of lectures. The ethics that one has is very much related to the way in which you envision the person, and that that is fundamentally dependent upon a certain metaphysical vision. John Paul II's metaphysical vision of the human person strongly emphasizes that we as human persons are unities of body and soul, and that this is a crucial thing to remember in moral theology when trying to straighten out such complicated topics like fundamental option theory. This brings us to a more general consideration, and it's something I'd like to explain here because it's useful for fundamental option theory, but also it will be extremely important for what we come to next when we turn to the section on teleology. The Catholic Church's understanding of how to undertake a moral analysis of any given human act always has three parts. One sees this, for instance, in section 1761 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church and in many other places there as well, but let me review it in a general way. When one is undertaking the moral analysis of any particular human action that is trying to determine whether it's a good action or a bad action, whether it's 
to be morally praised or morally blamed, whether it's something that's permissible or something that's forbidden, or perhaps even something that's required. When one is undertaking a moral analysis of any human action, that is a deliberate, rationally done, known, deliberated, thought out, voluntary choice, in the making of that analysis, there are three factors. They are, and we'll see, somewhat complex, but I think it's so important to get them. First, we must consider the intention of the agent. In Latin, this was referred to as the finis operantis. That is, what the agent consciously is thinking about, what the agent is intending. That's one important consideration. The second important consideration are the circumstances. That is, the particular situation in which I do it because a particular action might be fine in one circumstance, but different in another. For instance, the spousal intercourse of married people is one situation, whereas the same act of intercourse done by people who are not married to one another, perhaps even married to someone else, is something very different altogether. Even though it's the same physical action, and there might be some of the same psychological, same inner desires, same inner commitments, the situation is very, very different, and hence situation like circumstance, and then all the consequences that flow from an action. That's a second area that must be considered. So first, the intention of the agent. Second, the circumstances, including the consequences. We'll say much more about this in the next three lectures. But the third is a very important consideration. The technical way of talking about it in moral theology is to talk about the object of the action, that is, its moral species or its moral kind. And this is the one I think that is often misunderstood. It's the point that specifically needs to be emphasized in order to understand John Paul II's critique of fundamental option theory. In Latin, this was referred to as the finis operis, that is, the end of the deed being done. And so he's distinguishing, as Catholic moral theology often does, between the finis operantis, the end of the agent, and the finis operis, that is, the end of the action. Here in this particular case, one would consider, what is it that the action is headed for if a person were doing it as a human action? Granting the person's motives might be very different, that's the finis operantis, or the intention. But what does the action itself head for? What is its orientation, and hence what is its moral kind or moral species? If I might use the same example again for just a minute, the finis operis, that is the end of the action of sexual intercourse, is union with another. And it includes, of course, openness to life, this is why John Paul II, in his works on sexuality, would have frequently emphasized the point that the unitive meaning of sexual intercourse and the procreative meaning of sexual intercourse can never be divorced. They are indeed separate but related ends of marriage. And in focusing on that point, it is this nature of the action, the moral species, the kind or the object that we are considering here. What the actual act of sexual intercourse intends as an act is union and the possibility of procreation. Whereas the intention of the agent could be various. A married couple, for instance, might undertake spousal love precisely in order to have a child. Or 
They might simply be interested at the end at the notion of their own intention of comforting one another, of showing one another their affection, perhaps of really assisting the other by giving a certain pleasure and by giving a certain warmth and by giving a certain affection. That is, there are many possible intentions that a couple could have. In addition to any intention that is within their mind, there is also the actual orientation, the meaning of the act. And this is why Pope John Paul II, in his defense of Humanae Vitae, in his various works like Love and Responsibility, talks about the unitive meaning and the procreative meaning of an act of sexual intercourse. In talking about those two meanings, what he's designating is this third aspect of the moral analysis of any deliberate act, namely the intrinsic orientation of the action itself, that which gives it the moral coloring if it is freely done by a human agent. Now this relevance here for fundamental option theory is that fundamental option theory is utterly denying that the nature of the action, the moral species, is relevant. The contention of fundamental option theory is the only thing that's morally relevant is the general orientation and commitment of the subject to a life plan. Thereafter, anything else is a technical calculation and shouldn't be considered as morally praiseworthy or morally blameworthy. I think we can see by this point why John Paul II is so very much worried about this as an erroneous trend within moral theology. It certainly goes against the grain of what is absolutely necessary for Catholics to hold in moral theology. It is not only against biblical revelation, because biblical revelation so often focuses on the kinds of act, that's why the commandments are as specific as they are, and then various other parts of the moral teaching that comes from revelation. But it's also from the perspective of reason, when one thinks about what the nature of freedom is, that our freedom is exhibited in the particular actions that we undertake, and hence we must look at the type of action that we're proposing to do, because we need to ask whether it really does affirm and defend human dignity, or whether it cannot be reconciled with human dignity, because it is truly antithetical to the nature and thus the dignity that is due the person. For John Paul II, repeatedly within this part of his chapter, he is insisting that the only way we'd ever know there is a fundamental orientation are by the repeated choices we make in support of it, and that if we make a particular choice that is antithetical to that fundamental orientation, well, the particular action that we undertake is actually what tears down, denies, and destroys the fundamental orientation. There is no such thing, in his judgment, as a fundamental orientation if we're acting against it. He urges then that we have a deep pastoral care here, because many people are confused on this matter, and certain trends in, fund in fundamental moral theology in recent decades have not helped the matter. His analysis is, I think, clear and cogent, and we'll use some of what we've covered in this lecture in the next three lectures when we're considering the final portion of Section 2, a section given to teleology. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.